You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. One of the things we do as a church then is that we open the Bible together so that it might shape us. We believe that God speaks to us through this. And so I want to invite you to join us. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3. We've been walking through the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and if you don't have a Bible or a device that will get you access to one, you'll see a paperback Bible even uh, in, the, in the basket of the chair in front of you. And I want to say that if you don't have a Bible, please make that our gift to you. If you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, we would love uh, to make that a gift to them. And so we, we believe believe that when we open this Bible, God begins to open us through it. And, and we're looking at, in essence, the, the person and work of Jesus that we believe is good news. That is, the word gospel simply means good news. That when we see who Jesus is and what he's done, we find that to be incredibly good news. Good news we cannot keep a secret. And so Matthew is introducing us to who Jesus is. The way he's been doing that and you'll see this throughout the entirety of the 28 chapters in his gospel, is by reminding us of things that God has started in the past that are fulfilled in Jesus. Promises made in the past that are fulfilled in Jesus. Things that God is committed to do for his people that we find and receive in Jesus. So he regularly references Old Testament scriptures, and he does that one more time here. You'll see in the passage we read as we read the entirety of the third chapter. So in many ways, there, you could say there's a, a prologue that we're still in here. The, the teaching of Jesus, split up into roughly five section, sections, starts later. But these first few chapters are an introduction to who Jesus is, how we're su- supposed to hear and receive him. And what we'll find here in the third chapter is something that all four Gospels tell us about. So we're going to be introduced to a character and some terms that we'll walk through today, and I hope you'll find them to be good news So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3, we'll read through the entirety of the third chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Would you begin our time together by praying with me? God, we want and need more of Jesus. Um, Grant us sight of him. Let us experience his presence in some miraculous way, even in this building and this, this place and this time. For those of us who have never heard this good news or this hope in Jesus has never settled deep in our heart and soul, would you, would you by these words do what we cannot? Awaken us to faith and new life. Remind us of your love for us demonstrated in coming to be with us in Jesus. Thank you for the love you've showered upon him and us through him. And it's in his name we receive this. Amen. Only two of the Gospels begin with the birth of Jesus. The other two are Scrooges. And across the four Gospels, there are a few things, and we'll draw attention to them every time they come up in our journey through Matthew, but there are a few events that all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though they all come at a different angle at telling us about who Jesus is to a different kind of audience or people who need to hear it in a different way. They all tell us about John and they all tell us about the baptism of Jesus by John. Every single one of them. Now, if you were here several, several years ago uh, when we were walking through the gospel of Mark, that means that this will seem like uh, the same sermon you heard then. Uh, If a couple of years ago you were with us through the gospel of or excuse me, through Mark and then through the Gospel of John just a couple of years ago, this will also seem like the same sermon you've heard. And, and if you've heard all three of these, uh, then I think that's a sign where you get to teach this text to someone, okay? It's your turn. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all think that there is something powerful here, and I, I want us to, to dig into it, and I hope that it's something we all receive today. I want to begin by, in many ways, asking a question, but I, I want us to ask it in, in context of the story of the Bible. You see, even after the Gospels, the, the book of Acts tells us about what is happening the, uh, and how this movement of the Gospel multiplies 
to the ends of the earth, and even at that point to the, to the central cult, or excuse me, the cultural center of the earth, which is Rome. And so in the book of Acts, we find this, this story, this, this, this account as the gospel multiplies, and it makes reference to the significance of this event, not just for the gospel writers, but for Christianity as a whole, in many ways to explain why it is that you and I would gather in a building, right, continents and oceans away from where this story was first told, to contemplate a mystery of who Jesus is. It says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, that is God, preaching good news of peace through Christ Jesus, for he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were opposed to the devil, for God was with him. A movement that began, even in these chapters, you and I, in many ways, find ourselves caught up in today. And Luke, and quoting the writer, Luke quoting the, a sermon here of how it is that God began and carried on this movement includes, did you hear it? Almost word for word, the account of Matthew. That something began. Jesus' public ministry, something we're supposed to think is essential about who Jesus is, what he taught, and what he accomplished, was found here in this third chapter. Now, along the line uh, of, of kind of walking through this text, we're going to see, I believe, the meaning of baptism and then the message of baptism. But along the way, most of what we're going to do today is define some terms. Because a whole lot of heavy terms were dropped into this one passage, and they're going to show up for the rest of the, this gospel, and they're going to show up for the rest of the New Testament. And so most of what we're going to be doing in explaining this chapter is just simply defining terms as the Bible understands them. So beginning even in the very beginning there, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he, he gives us a picture of a kingdom, a kingdom that is now here, that phrase at hand. It, it's now, right? It's as if to say like Sunday is at hand, right? I mean, that's a prophetic way of saying today is Sunday, right? But as if to say with some sort of gravitas, Sunday is upon us, right? Yeah, indeed, it, it, is, it is here. But John is saying that the thing that we've been longing for the age of God's reign and rule is here. It's upon us. It's now. And it begs a question that you and I will ask through each of the Gospels, and I believe it might be best phrased this way. What would it be like if God was completely in charge of every aspect of your life? What would it look like if God had complete and total freedom to work in your life and mine? And what would it look like for you to see him as king and lord and give him the controls over everything? Because you see that phrase, kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll see Mark and Luke use this language, kingdom of God. It's the same thing, right? Uh, it's just that Matthew is speaking to a largely Jewish audience. And he's a, we'll find out later, his name was Levi. Uh, that has, a, it has this old tradition to it. But he's an educated, devout Jewish man. And so the ineffable name of God, Yahweh, is something that in his devotion he would not be saying. So instead of saying the kingdom of God, it's, it's as if in many ways he's saying like the kingdom of gosh, right? 
It's like a, a substitute in which you're like, I, I think I know what you mean, right? And so he's going to say the kingdom of heaven, but what he means is the kingdom of God. But that word kingdom is, is in many ways not a very good translation because English doesn't quite capture it. That, that is, this is a noun that has action implied to it. it it's kind of like uh, the word love, right? The word love is a noun, but it also serves as a verb. Whereas in this case, the word kingdom doesn't serve as a verb, right? You can't kingdom, right? In that sense, there's the better word for this would be reign, right? Not reign like that falls, R-E-I-G-N. Shouldn't have spelled that out loud. I hope that was right. The reign of God, right? The sovereign rule of God. The, the reign and rule of God is what he's talking about. That is to say, what would it be like if God ruled? What would it be like if God reigned? And so throughout Jesus' public ministry, we'll see he starts parables this way. The kingdom of God is like, right? And then it's, it's, it's beautiful because he, he describes a rule and reign that looks nothing like earthly kingdoms. But that's another sermon for another day. John starts by saying, you need to prepare for the rule of God because the rule of God is now here. God's kingdom, his reign and rule is going to be visible right here and now. And there is one who is coming, a king who comes to reign, and through him we will see what God's kingdom is like. So that's the first one. In many ways, Matthew is making an appeal alongside John and even Jesus, who will repeat this very same thing when he goes public in the chapters to come. Now, I want to, to, to connect some dots on that, right, by highlighting some, some obstacles. In general, you and I don't like kings. We don't like kingdoms, right? And that's not just an American Western thing, although that certainly is. But of the 206 sovereign nation states around the globe, only 43 of them would identify as monarchs. And a very, 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 very small number identify as what are called absolute monarchs. So in many ways, it's not just that we as Americans who have a rich heritage of saying by throwing tea in the ocean, no thank you, right? Human beings don't like this. Around the globe, right, there are, only a few, there are only a few absolute monarchies that still exist. I encourage you to look them up. They're fascinating. They are fun. I mean, they're like how, how you become king and, oh, it's, it's good stuff. But in general, it's something we don't like because none of us like being told what to do by some sinful person. And in many ways, it works better for all of us because what it typically exists are what we call like a shared or a constitutional monarchy, in which case the king only, or the queen only has enough power or only has the power given to them by the people under their consent in, in the constitution. They can't go beyond that, right? Which makes people feel safe. So you have to start there. To say that Jesus is a king already is to say something that many of us are not, it's not only foreign to us, quite literally, it is something that is deeply offensive to us. That someone would have the right to tell you and I what to do. Right? I love, I love the battle cry, right? Patrick Henry, give me liberty or what? Death. Kill me before you tell me what to do, right? Like, oh, okay. And as a whole, around the globe, we feel this way. So I want you to see right there, that, that's, that's going to be an obstacle. That will be something every time the kingdom of God comes up. It will be a topic that I want you to be honest with yourself. And the Bible, I love how honest the Bible is. Be honest with yourself about how that really offends you. 
it grates on you. In fact, if it doesn't, I don't think you're hearing it. The second thing, when we think about a kingdom, a rule, maybe the better way to see it, it, it's casting a vision for what God's perfect reign and rule will look like in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. Now, we do have some, I think, I think the closest semblance of this is the next time you see a campaign ad, right? Someone running for public office is basically saying this, hey, here's what it's look like if you'll vote for me. If I get in charge, this is what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to lower taxes, or I'm going to bring justice here, or I'm going to bring fairness here, or I'm going to do, right? And, and immediately they're saying, this is what it would be like if I were in charge. Vote for me, because if I'm in charge, this is, what my, this is what my service and authority and, right, this is what it would look like. And so also, John is saying, Peter, excuse me, Jesus after him is going to say, this is what God's kingdom look like, looks like, and here's how you can prepare for it. How do you prepare for this kingdom that is now here? There's a second term we have to define, that word repent. Do you see that? Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So back to that question, what would it look like if God were in charge it would mean that you would begin to turn from your ways of ruling yourself or doing what you want to do and surrendering that to the charge, rule, and reign of God. That's what it would look like if God were in charge. It, we find here it would look like repentance. I've got to define that. Again, quite literally, repentance is a military turn, to turn away from something, to turn from something. Now, that's interesting because if you look at the Gospel of John, you remember this as we walk through it, the Gospel of John, or John doesn't use that word. He uses the word faith. So we usually kind of collect the two together and talk about coming to Jesus, becoming a Christian is an act of what I would say are two sides of, uh, of the same coin of repentance and faith. You've heard me say this before, I'll keep saying it, but to repent or to turn away from something is necessarily to turn towards something else. So when John says, turn to Jesus, trust in Jesus, he's saying you're going to turn from your sin, your own reign, in the same way that if I said, hey, I'm going to turn away from you, it necessarily means I turn toward the screen. But on the other hand, there's no way I can turn toward the screen without turning away from you. Get the idea? And so this idea of repentance is to turn from something and to turn to something else. Turn from these other, in this case, kingdoms. Turn from the rule and reign of sin over your body and over the world and over history. And turn to a king who comes with a new rule and reign different than anything you've ever seen. And so, for the purpose of this, the best way to think of repentance is to turn wholly and completely. Away from sin. Away from things that we would love and serve other than a king who is good. So the message of John here, picked up by Jesus, you'll see Matthew in many ways over the next several chapters is going to almost word for word show us how Jesus' teaching ministry was directly connected to the prophetic ministry of John. So repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he, now, now Matthew's going to do what he normally does to remind us this thing that's happening, it's not plan B, it's not an accident, this is something God has started long before. And he quotes Isaiah. For this, that is John, is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah when Isaiah says there is a voice that will come that will be crying in the wilderness and that voice will be preparing the way of the Lord. It will be making his path straight. He will be a forerunner. He will be a precursor. He will be in many ways an opening act to the main act. 
He tells us more, not only about the message of John, but he tells us about, in this case, like the ministry and disposition of John. Verse 4, now, when, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Probably the third term that we have to define here is what the Bible means by baptism. Now, now Christians who love Jesus across time and history have disagreed on this particular topic. I don't really care to weigh in on that, only to say this is what Matthew tells us baptism is. In fact, this is what John tells us baptism is. So you kind of get the, in this case, the meaning of baptism, which I believe leads to what we find later is the message of baptism. So the meaning of baptism, quite literally, that this is this is. This is a, a, a nerdy Greek lesson, right? Push your glasses up. The word baptize is simply a, a form of a Greek word, baptizo, which means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. That's what it means. And so one of the things I want to do is as we kind of define it here, I also want to explain why as a church we practice baptism like we do, right? This isn't like something we want to stick it to people around us like we get it. We're, no, this is simply our, our best attempt to be faithful to what the Bible says, in some sense, when, it's, when, when, the, when the Bible says, this is what a thing is, you may interpret it in sorts of different ways, but at no point you get to like, no, it actually isn't, right? So here we go. Baptism is always connected to, now did you catch here, repentance, confessing of sin. So even the grammar of the word baptize means to immerse or dunk. So you may ask, do you baptize infants in your church? Well, let me tell you quite just very clearly, here's why we don't. One, Plunging babies underwater is not a good idea. I, I'm not a doctor. Uh, none of you are surprised by that. You're like, oh, really? I thought you might. No. That's not a wise choice, right? And so in that sense, uh, there, there are certain sects of Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodox Christians actually do this. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. It's a trip. Uh, don't think the baby enjoys it. Uh, <laughs> And so, and so for us, just practically speaking, this isn't something that we see administered to children in the Bible, and in this sense, because you can't dunk a baby underwater. At least you shouldn't, right? The second part of this, it always is, uh, baptism is always connected to discipleship, confessing of sin and repenting of sin. And so this is just simply our way to say when we baptize, we want baptism to be connected to someone believing in Jesus, confessing their sin, and turning repentantly to Jesus. That's it. Again, we don't baptize infants because it's really difficult to make an infant repent. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's really difficult. And so in that sense, we believe this is a practice for us, if we want to model it as best we can, that always comes alongside confessing of sin, repenting of sin, and being immersed. Why? Because it's saying something about, did you catch here what, what John says, this is what I'm doing with water, and there's one who's going to come, and he's going to do it with the spirit and fire. So if you just connect the dots there, maybe the third thing was like, why do we immerse? Now, now I, don't, I don't believe this is like, this is the absolute, like, this is not magic. That's the important part here. This is not magic. This is a mystery. We apprehend by faith. But a part of that, I'll give you a couple of components of that, is, for example, um, that as, as John tells us that baptism is a picture of what the Spirit will do through Jesus. And so just in general, if I was like, hey, how much of God's Spirit do you want in and on you? 
and all around you, right? And if you're like, just a sprinkle, man, just a, not much, you know? Ew, the Holy Spirit, right? And, and we're meant to see, again, this is a, a grammar thing. Uh, verse 6 says that he was baptizing in the River Jordan. In the River Jordan. And that's meant to say something about baptism. That if it's a picture of what the Spirit does, then in many ways we go, then give me all you can. Lord, give it, give it all to me. Pour out all of your Spirit. Now, I use that language because in Acts, there are times when the Spirit is poured out. So in that sense, if dunking isn't, right, if, if, if immersing a person in water who's repented of sin is not possible, you don't have enough water, then I would say, then get as much as you can, right, and pour as much as you can. Uh, I, I share this with you. The, the, it's not magic. The, the, there's no magic in the water. It's, it's declaring a, an eternal truth that we see and apprehend by faith. For example, a good friend of mine is a pastor, and a, a man, uh, af- after experiencing a, a, a traumatic injury, uh, so he, he was breathing through a tube and heard the gospel from a chaplain in the hospital and comes to Jesus, and they baptize him. Well, he is, he is partially paralyzed and, and breathes through a tube. Putting this brother underwater is not a good idea, right? Like, I mean, this is not, not why. And so, so they did as best they could poured water over this brother, right? So in that sense, don't, don't think of the, the mechanism or the means here and the method as the most important thing. They point to a mystery. There's no magic in the water. And for us as Christians, this is also how we understand, for example, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. There's no magic in the bread or the juice. I mean, if so, we, I mean, just think about it. All you would have to do is to get some of that bread and juice into the water supply in Sioux Falls, and everybody would experience salvation, right? Which... If you believe that, I don't know why you haven't done that yet. Like, well, why? There's no magic in it. And yet, for those of us whose eyes have been opened to Jesus, there's something powerful about that little bitty snack and that little bitty drink. Because after all, no one would do that. There's no one who's like, I'm really hungry. Can I have just a little, like a, just a little crumb and a little sip? Just, just a little bit. That isn't satisfying. That isn't nourishing. And for those of us who have had our eyes open to the gospel of Jesus, it's one of the most nourishing things ever, isn't it? The body of Christ is broken for you. I just need a little. It's enough for me, right? The, the blood of Christ poured out for you. In the same way, baptism isn't, isn't a miracle of means or mechanism. It's, that's not the thing. There's no magic in the water. Instead, did you hear what's going on? It is a picture of what the Spirit is doing in repentance, so, again, that's just an excursus for me to say as we define the terms, here's how we as a church practice. And I want to invite you uh, to think seriously about this because, after all, remember I told you how, like, ultimately this whole story of Jesus, Matthew is telling us that climaxes in chapter 28, that this Jesus was born as a king and has all authority, Jesus says in verse 18, in heaven and on all earth. You hear that sovereign reign, that absolute kingship, the absolute rule over all things. And so what is it that Jesus does with his authority? He says, go, make disciples, invite more people into this. And how will you do this? You will baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? Well, did you hear it? Jesus was baptized, and did you, did you see what happened? Uh, this is probably the last term I'll define, then we'll kind of look at some principles in here. But like, did, did you see what happened when Jesus was baptized? The whole Trinity shows up. 
So we've got to define that term. If you look throughout your Bible, you won't find in your concordance the word Trinity. But it's simply a term that historically Christians have, try, have used to try to describe what is going on here. It's a mystery, again, that God would be with us in Christ and his spirit would renew us and draw us to Christ. Right? The, the, the God who creates and sustains the universe is the God who redeems us in Christ and who, who in, calls us to himself in the spirit and keeps us forever. That's, that's God. And so the term that Christians will use is Trinity. That is tri-divinity, like God who is three in one. And in baptism, did you, did, you see, did you see why Jesus would tell them, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Did you hear? It happened in his own baptism. The whole Trinity shows up there for a party. The Spirit comes down like a dove, and then God speaks out a word of pleasure and delight and love in his Son. So, not only is this, in this sense, where Matthew is taking us to understand who Jesus is by means of excursus, this is why we want to practice this the way we have. So maybe if you're in this room, and, and I'm going to compel you to this in, in just a moment here, but, uh, but like, here's, here's how Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, and he says what I simply want to say to you about baptism. Peter preaches the series uh, of sermons in the beginning of the book of Acts, the greatest sermons ever recorded, right, um, by, by apostles. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the, gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear it again? The Holy Spirit's work to, to let us see our sin and yet see that there's mercy and grace available to us. And so whether you're an unbeliever in this room, I want to tell you, repent and be baptized. If you're a believer in this room, Maybe, maybe you've been baptized, and I want to say repent and remember your baptism. Remember what's declared over it, the mystery and miracle of God renewing his people. One of the last things I think we see in the meaning of baptism is related to what John is doing here. So there's no Old Testament practice of baptism. There, there, if you go out through the, throughout the Old Testament, there, there's ritual cleansing and purifying but at no point is there a place where people start doing this. Instead, this is directly connected to a new prophetic work that God is doing and beginning in John. In many ways, God started it through John. Now, this will mean a lot for us because we just finished a series through Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the last books of the uh, it, it, think of it as like some of the, the latest written books of the Old Testament about a period of exile. But, but remember how they, they kind of left us on a down note, didn't they? You left even like one of the last stories is Nehemiah and, and, and the work of renewal in God's people. He starts beating people up and pulling out their beard hair, right? Like, and you're left going like, that's it? Like that's, 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 that's the way, that's the good life? Like that's, oh, that's how we fix sin. You just beat people and pull out their hair, right? There's something in there. You're like, that's, that can't be right. There's, there's got to be more to it than that. And so what, what ensued after this period of rebuilding the temple was what was four centuries of silence, four, ser of, four centuries of that, of kind of like, man, God started this, but it doesn't seem like it should be all that God, this is all that God says it should be. And there was a silence, no prophetic word. So the significance we find here in John's ministry is he is the first in four centuries for God to speak. And he connects himself with the prophetic tradition of old. Did you hear about him? Not dressed up nicely, right? Out in the wilderness, out wandering, connecting himself with the outsider. And who is he baptizing? He's baptizing Jews. 
Now that's fairly important, right? Because the ritual of baptism, as best we can see it, was a practice where outsiders, Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, profess faith in God, that God is one, and then they were baptized as if a, a picture of renewal and rejuvenation and cleansing and purifying that they would come in and be part of God's people. But what we find here are Jews are going to do this, which, is, which has a few layers to it. One, it's an indictment against what Judaism was for the last four centuries. This, emerge, this emerges under the leadership of John as a purifying movement. Look where we see how that shows up. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, right? Th think of these as religious sects. We'll, we'll talk more about them um, later in, in the Gospel of, of Matthew. But think of this, I don't know, this is like, imagine the Episcopalians and the Charismatics, right? Believing in God, but having very, very different views of him, right? Coming out and, and just kind of like, what's happening out here? What's Right? They had different political and sociological views, and they, they came out to see what was going on. And, and what does John do? Does John say, hey, you, you know, we love God and we're, we're on the same team? No. He drops a threat to them. Did you hear that? You brood of vipers. So we got to define that for just a moment. That word brood, it's a word of, of plural progeny of a particular thing, right? That is, that like, the offspring of a particular thing. So, for example, like, if you think in terms of, like, a pack of dogs versus a litter of puppies. You get the difference? One is of, like, the full-grown, and one is of just the babies. Like, this is the newborn. This is... So, so notice, he's not calling them, like, a pack of vipers. It's like he's calling them a litter. He's like, you're the babies of vipers. You are the offspring, the spawn of vipers. Now, that's important because... At this particular time, just like you and I, they would have had a, a, a particular set of beliefs wrapped around what they believed about snakes, particularly vipers who, who were poisonous, right? So we experience this regularly, right? So there are certain animals across cultures, like that maybe as Americans we see an animal a certain way, and, and if, maybe if you were to, to, to be in a different country, the way you would see and experience that animal is different, right? So, for example, horses, right? Uh, in America, you don't eat a horse, um, you typically don't eat anything you name. That's, I guess that'd be my theory. But around the world, there are cultures that regularly eat horses. It's a delicacy. It's, a th it's you know, just like you would eat anything else, they, they would eat horses. But there's something in us that the way we think about horses, we're like, I don't think we're supposed to do that, right? There's, there's something, we have this belief about them that, that keeps us from doing that. Same with dogs, right? So around the world, dogs are, are seen as as kind of scavengers. They're, they're, they're useful for protection, for security, right? They bark when bad things are about to happen. Um, but in the United States, like, dogs are family. I don't want to disrupt that for you. That's, that's, we treat them like humans, and we give them human names. I had a dog named Harrison, all right? I don't know, like, that already tells you, right? Cats, for example. Like, around the world, cats are seen as, like, soulless and evil and demonic, Whereas, like, in the United States, cats are seen as evil and soulless and demonic. <laughs> One day I'm going to outgrow cat jokes. It's just not today. Okay? I actually, yeah. But we see animals differently, right? And so the same, there would have been a lore and belief about snakes. What we find from the historian Josephus and other contemporary writers at this time is that most ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures would have seen snakes 
in a, in a very evil and awful way. And that's a tradition for us that even goes back to the first story in the Bible, which describes the enemy personified evil as a snake, a serpent that slithers, right? Sneaky. Now, it's especially important because, like, if you didn't have a really strong, like we have, a, 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 we're pretty gifted with an understanding of poison and, and poisonous animals. And so if you didn't have that and, like, a snake bit you and you got sick and died, you would think that was a crazy magical thing, Right? And so we have a little bit of understanding in this one, but, but for them even, the lore around snakes was that, was that snakes weren't born, is that snakes ate their way through their mother's belly to come to life. Like their way of coming to life was to kill their mother on the way in. But why do I tell you all that? Because what John starts here, a movement of reform, a movement of confessing sin and hypocrisy and turning to God for mercy, he looks at the religious, the religious leaders of the day, and what does he call them? You little baby snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So notice the other side of John's message and Jesus' message. It's a message of deliverance and redemption, but it's also a message of judgment. That there is deliverance for the repentant, but there is judgment for those who do not. He speaks that to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You'll see this over and over again. Matthew regularly talks about the connection between our faith in God and our actual lives. He's going to regularly do this. There are things in our lives where you could think you believe something, but if you look at the work of your hands, you'll see you're a hypocrite. And Jesus goes right after this with the Pharisees and Sadducees later, and Matthew starts his gospel by telling us that that's actually the ministry that even John was engaged in. And he says, don't presume to tell yourself. Like, don't, don't presume that your lineage is your hope. Did you hear that? Don't say, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Another side excursus why we practice baptism for believers rather than for children. Because John's first introduction of baptism as for the confessing of sin and accompanying repentance, he even says, hey, don't think this is about what family you were born into. Don't think that the work of God is connected to your biological birth. Instead, realize the work of God is a supernatural birth. And he says, don't think that just because you're related to Abraham, you can get away with this. You see those dead rocks over there? Our God will call from the dead his children. He is pleased and delights to call that which is not into being, Paul tells the Corinthians. God is able to raise up from these dead stones children for Abraham. And then he gives another word of judgment. There's an ax, and it's about to be laid to the root of every fruitless tree. You'll hear Jesus pick this up as well. So, I baptize you, verse 11 says, with water for repentance, but he coming after me is mightier. I'm not even worthy, I love that. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Did you hear this picture of purification, even purification by judgment? Verse 12, his winning, winnowing fork, this is another one of those present statements. The kingdom is at hand, what does he say? His winning, winnowing fork, not will be in his hand, it is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor. And then we get a picture of judgment that goes all the way back to even our time when we were in Ruth, right? The, the, the winnowing of, of chaff from the, the valuable seed. You would grind it up, toss it in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, which Psalm 1 tells us is a picture of evil. And then the valuable seed would fall down. It would remain. 
So also, he says, this Jesus is going to come and he's going to redeem a remnant. But those who don't turn to him and find hope, they're going to be burned like waste, like chaff. So, in this, I hope you see the meaning of baptism as you contemplate what it is that Jesus is doing here. But I want to wrap up our time, verse 13 on to the end of the chapter, with I believe is the message of baptism. So, then Jesus came from Galilee. He came to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. That is that Jesus came from an obscure place and he, he stepped into the, into the scene, and the first thing he did is that he was baptized by John. Now, scholars disagree across, across the board, have different answers for why they think it is that Jesus did this. And, and I think it fits into the overall message of the entirety of the gospel, that this is one of the first ways that Jesus publicly began to identify with the world, that he began to identify with sinful people. And so, this picture of baptism, of being completely covered and completely immersed, and yet, again, we say this regularly, but not drowned, right? Romans 6 tells us is a picture of God's ability to raise from the dead and make what was dead and nothing alive and something. And so Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, and he came to John, and he says, he came to be baptized, and John says to him, he said, I prevented him. I love that. Like, Anytime you see somebody telling Jesus what to do, right? Think of it as like, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, is that we often think we know and we tell Jesus what to do. And so it says he wanted to tell Jesus what to do. Like, hey, you shouldn't do this. And what is his reason? He says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That is, there's something fundamental about the righteousness, the holiness, and perfection of God that in some mysterious way come together in you baptizing me. Now, many people would say, strictly speaking, that Jesus is serving as an example. He absolutely is that. He, starts an he sets an example that Christians have been following since, that is, baptizing people, right? As a rite of passage from being far from God into now, by grace, being drawn near to God. And so he, he serves as an example. But, but here's the thing. He only ever serves as a teacher or as an example to point to something else. Historically, Christian, Christian teachers would call it the difference between what we say is the, the Christus exemplar, Christ our example, the Messiah who is our example, versus Christus vicar, that is Christ our substitute. Christ who is vicar, vicariously done something for us. And so Jesus here isn't just setting an example. And that's important. Because if Jesus for you is only an example, you're going to hate him. He's a terrible example. Because it's crushing. Every time you're like, well, did I? Well, no. You know, like, did I do? No. Right? Every time you compare yourself to Jesus, you're going to find yourself crushed. And so does Christ serve as an example and a teacher? Absolutely. But those things only set the stage for how Christ serves as our substitute. And so, look at how he does that. Hear the good news in John's words. Jesus comes and he says, I, I I'm going to be baptized by you. And John says something that's profound for all of us. 
he looks at Jesus and he looks at himself. He sees what he's doing and he sees what Jesus longs to do. And he says a, a profound mystery. He's like, I, I think we need to switch places. Like, you're coming to be baptized by me. Jesus, you should baptize me. Because after all, if, if baptism is a picture of repentance, if baptism is a picture of renewal and new life for those who have confessed their sin, why would Jesus, who has never sinned, want to be baptized? And the answer is in Jesus or in John's words. Jesus, I, I think you're in the wrong place. Jesus, you're in my place. You're over here occupying the role and the place of the center. Jesus, you're in my place. You're over here taking the space of those who need to repent of their sin. Jesus, you're in my place. Do you hear it? And one of the most profound mysteries is that we look at Jesus and we're like, hey, I think you're in my place. I, I don't think that you're where you should be. And something profound happens for John. He says what we all will say when we see Jesus as we ought to. When we see our sin and his perfection. And we say, Jesus, I think we should switch places. We look at Jesus on the cross. And we see him taking all of the sin of the world for you and for me. And we go, Jesus, I think you're in the wrong spot, Jesus. I think I'm supposed to be up there. You're supposed to be down here living. I'm supposed to be up there dying. And I want you to see, this is a story that is told by Matthew and others over and over and over again. Did you hear it at the beginning? The very first story Matthew tells us is a lineage of sinners. Right? And you think like, well, who belongs in this list of sinners? Not Jesus. Oh, never mind. There he is, in the place of sinners. Right? The, the very first story is of is of, is of the people worshiping as a king, and what is he? He runs off, has to run off with his family as a fugitive. And you're kind of like, well, a fugitive, that's, that's certainly a place for sinners. Oh, never mind. That's, Jesus took that place. And one of the most public first things he does, did you hear it? He occupies the space, identifies with the sinners. You see this elsewhere, right? The apostles and Peter, Jesus washing their feet, and what do they say? You're in my place. I'm supposed to be washing. I mean, I'm the servant here. I should wash your feet. And Peter kind of gets it and, and says, like, well, fine, then wash all of me. And Jesus kindly, like, that's not the point. You know, we'll come back to that, right? You see gatherings of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, Matthew calls them. And you think, that's a place where sinners belong. Nope. There's Jesus in the place of sinners. Occupying the space of sinners. That's what he does. Jesus takes the place of sinners so that what will happen? So that we will take the place that he rightly deserves. Did you hear the end? It says that when he was baptized, he took the place of sinners. It fulfilled righteousness such that the God of the universe declared over the crowd, right? This is the son I love. This is my love poured out on him. This is the one in whom I'm pleased. Friend, Jesus takes the place of sinners so that God will now attribute to Jesus or attribute what is meant to be attributed to Jesus to sinful people. He takes our place so that we get to take his. Look, this is how 
Paul tells this very same story to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are now ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, that is through Jesus. Why or how? Paul tells us, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, you hear it again? What happened? We, we become the righteousness of God. He takes the place of sinners so that we occupy the place of the righteous. Look, Jesus takes the place of repentant sinners. Do you hear this story? A practice of repentant sinners finding new life, new hope, and forgiveness and purity, right? And Jesus, you would think, would come and say, now I'm here to, I'm here to baptize. And what does he do? He takes the place of repentant sinners. Friend, that is what this is about. That is what baptism is. So I can say to you, if you're not a believer, repent and believe. Be baptized. And you might say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Don't be. Did you hear what happens? The delight and pleasure of God the Father is showered on the repentant sinner. Man, I love this part. We're united by faith with Christ so that all that God says about Jesus, he says about us. And some of you have never had a father or a mother or someone with any sort of power or authority or influence in your life say these words. But in Christ, God the Father looks at you and says, this is my beloved child. I'm so pleased with him. I'm so pleased with her. And for some of you have never heard that from anyone. I have the privilege to say what God the Father says to you in Christ. Come, turn from these other ways. Experience the rule of Jesus who is kind and good and gentle. And he will take your place. And you won't feel shame. You won't feel condemnation. Did you hear what you'll feel? The pleasure of God. I mean, just think about that. So how are you doing today? God is pleased with me today. Right? And somebody's like, well, have you seen you today? Like, that's, how's that possible? I know that's crazy. Because this is the mystery that John teaches us. In the same way that John looks at Jesus as he asks to be baptized by John, and he says, Jesus, you're in my place. So also, you and I, by God's grace, look at Jesus on the cross and say, Jesus, you're in my place. You've taken the space that I deserve. And now all I get is life. All I get is the pleasure and love of God. The thing I have wanted and needed my whole life, I am now freely given. How much am I given that? Well, how wet are you when you are underwater, right? That's, that's the picture. That's how much love and delight and pleasure is showered on. That's what we're dunked in. So friend, repent and believe. Receive renewal. Receive it. So for some of you, if you're not a believer, man, I, I want, I want to, this is why I said I would, I would make note of this. Before today is over, scan that QR code. You'll find a link. And in that form we ask you to fill out, there'll be some questions related to you. You want to know more about following Jesus? We'd love to hear about that. I want to tell you more about what it's like to experience God's pleasure in Jesus. Maybe for the next step of you, it's, it's connecting your own repentance and confession of faith with baptism. Again, think about it. It's the message that is baptism. This is incredibly important. This is, um, there's, there's a couple of encouragements I would offer you. Maybe Because some of you are like, if I got baptized, what would my parents think? Right? 
and, or what would X, this person think? And did you hear what John says? That's not about that. That's not what this is about. Right? This is, you were a dead rock. You were a lifeless, worthless thing on the side of the road. And God, who's rich in mercy, picked you up, made you alive together with Christ. And so people need to hear that. So most people get kind of hung up on, should I do this or should I not? And this is why we ask this to people who, who want to be baptized. Who in your life needs to hear this good news? Not just preached, but actually visible. Who needs to not only hear the gospel proclaimed, but see the gospel in your baptism? That you were dead in Christ, but made alive. And so for most people, if you can't think of that, if you can't think of someone who needs to hear the gospel, then you're probably not ready to be baptized, frankly. Because when, once this gets you, when this, when this goodness of God gets you, you want everyone to hear about it. So for some of you, I want to encourage you, you've already done this. You started a trek towards being baptized, right? Hang in there. The pleasure of God is on you. Not because of the water, but because of Jesus. And so we practice this, we proclaim this in whatever way we can. And I want to compel you. You're free to repent. Jesus takes the place of repentant sinners. Stop trying to do what only Jesus can do. Elsewhere, Matthew and even Mark says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Did you hear John's words when he was convinced of this? Verse 15, it says he consented. Would you consent today? Would you let Jesus do what only he can do? Think about it. Would you let him serve you? Would you let the God of the universe serve you? To stop serving yourself. Repent, be baptized, experience the pleasure and delight of God. For those of you, maybe that's already you, then friend, remember your baptism and experience the delight and pleasure of God. Baptism isn't only an example. It's a picture of Christ's substitute. He takes the place of repentant sinners. Would you let him do that today? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness towards us in Christ. Uh, thank you that Jesus began his public ministry not just with a set of instructions, but by, by doing in his own life things that we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you that Jesus occupies the space of sinners because, Lord, we need that. Like John warns us, as a wrath that's coming, thank you that in Jesus Christ there is no more judgment day for those of us who have faith in Jesus. Judgment day was completely and totally absorbed by Jesus himself. Thank you that he took our place. Now, Lord, would you overwhelm us with the joy, the delight that you shower on us in, in Jesus, and by grace would we express faith, receive this gift, Lord, for some of us in this room, maybe this is just a terrifying and scary thing to do. Even now, would you, would you let them in some powerful way hear your voice through all of these things, that you love them, that you're pleased with them, that because of Christ who has taken our place, there is no more condemnation. All the righteousness that we could never attain on our own has been given us, given to us in Christ. He's taken our place, and now we get to take his. Maybe for those of us, we've forgotten this. We're wearied and worn. We're troubled. Thank you that you've brought us to this place to be reminded 
that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that your pleasure and delight in us, your love for us in Jesus will not end. Thank you for calling us to yourself this morning. Help us now. Grant us the gift of faith. By the power of the Holy Spirit, overwhelm us that we would experience your love, that in Christ we would experience delight and pleasure of the Father. Do now for us what we could never do for ourselves. For some of us, Lord, help us to stop trying to do those things. Instead, might even in the act of worship this morning be a way of receiving all the things that you do for us and give to us freely. Help us now receive that gift of life in Jesus as we respond in faith. Amen.